I invite you to take your Bible now and to turn with me to the book of Acts, uh, to Acts chapter 18 tonight. And our order of worship says through 19, verse 10. I want to take us a bit further than I originally planned and to go ahead and read through 19, verse 20, which will bring us to a, uh, a key turning point in the book. But Acts chapter 18, beginning at verse 1 and through 19, verse 20. Listen, this is God's word. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus, the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the, to the synagogue. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have made, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincrea he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow, and they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. 
When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him When he arrived, he he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them. The Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. But who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers 
came confessing and divulging their practices and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with the ends of worms and an oozy smell. Nor yet a dry, bare, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit on or to eat. It was a hobbit hole. And that means comfort. So goes the introduction to Tolkien's The Hobbit. He goes on, uh, the hobbit's name was Bilbo Baggins. The Bagginses had lived in the neighborhood of the hill for time out of mind. And people considered them very respectable. Not only because most of them were rich, but also because they never had any adventures. Nor did anything unexpected. Well, maybe some of you know how Bilbo's story in The Hobbit is interrupted. This this habit of never pursuing any adventures. Tolkien simply says, Gandalf came by. Gandalf came by, and uh, Tolkien describes him this way. If you had heard only a quarter of what I have heard about Gandalf, you would be prepared for any sort of remarkable tale. Tales and adventures sprouted up all over the place wherever Gandalf went, and in the most extraordinary fashion. We're well into this book of Acts at this point. Paul's first missionary journey began way back in chapter 13 and and continued through chapter 14. And along the way, we found Paul in every place, in every new place that he traveled with Barnabas, intent to proclaim the gospel. In places like Cyrus, Persia, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, many believed. And then uh, following the Jerusalem council in chapter 15, we, we began, we followed Paul on his so-called second missionary journey. We found him visiting brothers and sisters in every city, as Luke puts it, every city where they had proclaimed the word of the Lord, strengthening those who were previous, in those previously founded churches. But again, always also desiring to see the gospel take root in new places. And everywhere Paul goes, adventure seems to follow, sprouting up about him in the most extraordinary way. And as the story continues, we find that his journey is, is taking an ever is, is occurring in an ever-widening circle. 
growing quite impressive. And so in our passage today, we're, we're continuing in this second missionary journey, but Luke shows us, he, he continues to show us Paul interfacing with, with the Greek world, with Greek culture. Um, but that will soon change. Next time we will find Paul on a widening uh, trajectory toward Rome. And in the remainder of Acts, we will find Paul in contact, encountering Roman world structures and powers and evangelizing those entrenched in Roman culture. But reading these amazing developments in Paul's life, I think we sometimes find in ourselves something like a hobbit's sensibilities. Ah, to live in a hobbit hole. That means comfort. To be respectable. Please don't mention adventure. But again and again, this book, this book of Acts, has a way of disrupting those sensibilities. It gives us tales and adventures, opposition and vindication, these things sprouting all over the place so that we are led to ask, what is it about the gospel that challenges our comfort? What is it about the gospel that draws us into this kind of story? And so look what's happening uh, here in chapters 18 and 19. We've, we've already been focused, uh, getting focused stories of, of Paul's activities in various places, but now the pace begins to quicken so that in, in a mere two verses, we learn that Paul travels from Ephesus to Judea and back again. Uh, and during which he visits several churches along the way from, from Ephesus, sailing back to Caesarea, traveling to his home base in Antioch, and then quickly departing again, traversing Asia Minor and returning to Corinth and Ephesus. All this is now happening rapidly. It's really quite amazing. And we also start to get more summary statements, brief notes about where Paul is going. But then Luke, now and again, does slow down and ask us to pay attention. And here in these chapters, he does that in Corinth and in Ephesus. In Acts 17, we were with Paul in the marketplace of ideas in, in Athens, that great cultural center of the ancient world. We were with Paul reasoning with the philosophers in the Agora, proclaiming the resurrection of Christ to the Acropolis. And now we're in Corinth, this, a great commercial city, a center for trade uh, just uh, uh, located just south of, of mainland Greece, but an important port city with trade activities happening in all directions. And John Stott comments, he says, 
if trade could radiate from Corinth in all directions, so could the gospel. In Luke 2, he, he finds these events in Corinth, he finds Corinth significant, and so he invites us to pause and to see what Paul does there. And then there is Ephesus, a place also of, of commercial importance in Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey, also of, of political importance. It's, it was Rome's capital uh, in the province. And we'll see next time a place even of religious significance with the Temple of Artemis. Uh, and maybe you know is one of the wonders of the ancient world. So impressive was its size and its structures. But between uh, chapter 17 and, and 19 of Acts, then Luke gives us this ministry of Paul uh, in, in the three most significant cities of the ancient world. He draws us first into these scenes of ministry in Corinth. And he gives us there a familiar pattern. Reasoning in the synagogue, proclaiming Jesus as the Christ, uh, experiencing rejection, being drawn before the authorities eventually, and, and being vindicated. We've seen this over and again. But first, we meet new co-workers, Aquila and Priscilla. And already, Luke is connecting his story to the Roman world with which Paul will soon uh, interface. Aquila and Priscilla, they come from Italy because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. But that world, for the moment, is, is backdrop to Luke's action. Luke wants us to see the significance of these co-workers in the gospel. A wife, a husband, uh, joined together in the gospel cause. And so, then likewise, we find other co-workers. We find Silas and Timothy returning from Berea so that there is this robust ministry team gathered here in Corinth. And then the story, it gives us a glimpse, too, of Paul's way of supporting himself as a, a tent maker, a point that he, Paul himself, emphasizes and that's emphasized for us in the New Testament in a few places, that, so that though worthy of wages for his work of ministry, Paul supports himself, especially to, to clear himself of, of the appearance of personal benefit. But as this ministry is taking place, and as especially with the labors of Paul, opposition arises. And the opposition, it puts our attention and it focuses on Yes, Paul, but especially on this, on the word. You see, verse 5, Paul was occupied with the word. Testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And, and the Greek there the, for occupied, it gives a sense, as one commentator puts it, that the word had somehow taken hold of Paul, that 
the word compelled Paul that he must proclaim this gospel. This word, as it compels Paul to speak, it also stirs up the typical opposition. But Paul responds to uh, rejection much in the way that Jesus instructed his disciples to do. He shakes out his garments against them. Uh, and we, we shouldn't overread Luke's, or Paul's statement there, rather. From, he says, from now on, I am free to go to the Gentiles. It doesn't imply Paul's totally breaking uh, from ministry to Jewish communities, so that when he arrives in Ephesus... He will, again, go to the synagogue. Even in Corinth, Paul's ministry will take place, verse 7 says, in the home of Titius Eustace in a house next to the synagogue. But his act and his word is a kind of warning of judgment. And then it also forms a contrast with those who are coming to faith. If the synagogue is a kind of inhospitable place, space for for the word, once again in Corinth we find Paul and the word of the gospel being welcomed in, in the homes of those who come to faith. This was, we saw this back in chapter 16, that the household baptisms, they, they, they claimed, those, those who trusted and were baptized were claimed for Christ with their households so that those households also became instruments, sites for Christian mission. And so here, Paul ministers in uh, Titius's house and another household, belie- and, and uh, other households come to faith through that work. Crispus, the chief synagogue leader, it says, with his entire household believed in the Lord. It simply represents for us, Crispus and his house represent for us, as verse 8 puts it, the many, the many Corinthians who, when they heard, believed and were baptized. And all of this for Paul, it it signals this encouragement that he hears from the Lord. Uh, The Lord appears to him in a vision and says, I am with you. I have many people in this city. We get a sense for the Lord's sovereignty, for his leading and guiding and empowering Paul's work and those words, I am with you, they echo even through the next scene that Luke gives us as, uh, as Paul is, is drawn before the authorities because the, the, as the Jewish leaders finally mount their opposition, uh, Paul is once again vindicated. I am with you, God has said. And then Luke moves uh, Paul and us along. Priscilla and Aquila now travel with Paul and with us. But, but Luke brings us then to these scenes in Ephesus. 
And here we encounter something totally unique in Acts. That is, the, the camera shot, uh, the camera angle which for so long has been trained upon Paul, has been following Paul, it now briefly turns away. Paul comes to Ephesus. He leaves Ephesus. We stay in Ephesus. This is the only time we get something like this in Acts, but from verses 24 to 28, we are with Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila, and here's what we see. We glimpse in in these individuals that despite the shortcomings of Apollos, we we glimpse a ministry with all the, the marks and the gifting and the effectiveness that we have witnessed in Paul. Luke shows us the same ministry patterns. He uses the same language to describe them. So Apollos is speaking boldly in the synagogue. He's demonstrating by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And Priscilla and Aquila, they show the same competency. They instruct Apollos who knew only the baptism of John. Just as Paul will soon instruct the Ephesian disciples who experienced only the baptism of John. You see, in these co-workers, we realize that Paul, in his commitment to Christ, in the pattern of, of his ministry work, even Paul is not alone. Even Paul is replaceable. And what a powerful point that is to see for us here, knowing, as as I indicated, that Paul is about to be set on a new trajectory toward Rome. We are assured, we are assured at this crucial point that Paul is replaceable, that the the work doesn't rest on him or any other individual. Indeed, we see Apollos move on to ministry in Corinth, and Paul will one day write to the Corinthians, I planted the seed, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. Paul eventually does return to Ephesus, and on his return, we find him interacting with this theological problem uh, with the, these disciples, as Luke calls them, individuals who, who responded to the ministry of John the Baptist, who repented, who received his baptism of repentance. But Paul enters into this fascinating exchange with them Paul says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And notice Paul's, he implies that they did indeed believe. And they say, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And Paul said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And then as Paul lays his hands on them, 
we get, as, uh, as we've seen before in Acts, a, a repetition, a, a, or better, a reverberation of the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost. The same signs. What should we make of this? Uh, these are not just any disciples indifferent to time and place. Uh, and I think we should say that they, 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 give, they don't give us a kind of permanent paradigm for believers' experience of faith and of the giving uh, reception of the Spirit. Instead, they have this unique experience of, of knowing knowing the ministry of John, knowing the ministry of the, John, the forerunner of Jesus. They received his baptism, that baptism which was a sign pointing forward to the spirit baptism of Pentecost. Dr. Richard Gaffin writes, what occurs here is the tying up of a redemptive historical loose end. These disciples had repented, had believed uh, through that anticipatory uh, ministry of, of John, and now through Paul, they are brought into the full enjoyment of what Christ has accomplished in his death, resurrection, ascension, Pentecost. The last scene we witness in Ephesus, it's a set of amazing miracles. Miracles that uh, Luke says God was doing through Paul. Handkerchiefs, aprons that had touched Paul, uh, carried away and healing the sick. And as a characteristic of the Christian mission, we find that there are individuals who, who try to take what they see in Paul and try to fit it into their own categories. And so we have these seven sons of Sceva uh, who imagine that the work of the Spirit is just some form of magic to be mastered. Magic with which they themselves are well practiced. But we discover that the name of the Lord Jesus is not available as a magic charm. So you see the result. Fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Corinth, Ephesus, they give us these stunning displays of, of the power of the gospel so that uh, we, as we come to this turning point in the book, we encounter again what is a kind of refrain in the book of Acts. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of King Jesus continue to increase. And if we know in our hearts the word of this King Jesus, and if we see its power even in these stories in, in Acts, 
we should desire. We should desire something of the energetic ministry that we see here. We should desire that our homes would be sites for Christian mission, places where neighbors and friends come into contact with Christ. We should desire that, that Trinity would be a place where, where uh, believers are regularly built up in the gospel and where unbelievers come and encounter this word of the King. We should desire even to find spaces, as Paul does, the hall of Tyrannus, kind of neutral ground where we might know and, and speak with and, and serve and love and witness to those who would hardly consider stepping into a church. And then if the word of King Jesus, if it takes us into these kinds of places, it should also shape how we speak. Paul speaks over and over, we find, uh, Luke says that over and over, Paul speaks persuasively, reasoning with his interlocutors. Why? Because he is persuaded of the truth and of the power of the gospel. Why? Because he is persuaded that as he comes into contact with objections, with questions, that Christ's word, the gospel word, is more than able to answer those questions. And so if we know the power of Christ's word, if we know the word of this king, we should desire to speak as Paul spoke. More than that, Paul presses, uh, his speech gives us this, this speech seeking persuasion. We find a speech that, pers that, uh, that pursues in the listener a deep conviction. Not a response of take it or leave it, but a conviction that that Christ in his gospel calls us to faith and that that produces nothing less than a total life change. And finally, if we know the word of King Jesus and if we are convinced that his word continues to increase, this should give us patience. Patience for the long haul in ministering this gospel we not only find Paul returning again and again uh, to build up churches already established, but in, this in these passages, we see him settling in with Corinth. Three years. Settling in with Ephesus. Two years. This gospel needs to be thoroughly worked in us over the long haul. John Stott writes, when we contrast much contemporary evangelism with Paul's, its shallowness is immediately shown up. Our evangelism tends to be ecclesiastical, inviting people to church, whereas Paul took the gospel out into the world. 
Too emotional. Appeals for decisions without an adequate basis of understanding, whereas Paul taught, reasoned, and tried to persuade, and too superficial. Making brief encounters, expecting quick results. Whereas Paul stayed in Corinth and Ephesus for five years, faithfully sowing the gospel word and in due time reaping a harvest. The word of King Jesus is continuing to increase. Do you believe it? Will it shape our witness? Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we give you thanks for your word, powerful even among us tonight. Thank you that you over and again speak to us in your word and that you instill confidence in us through your word. Thank you for these amazing encounters of uh, and, and these amazing scenes of ministry in Paul, in co-workers, Apollos, Priscilla, Aquila. Thank you for the way that you invite us into this very, uh, into this very story to see your word continuing to increase. Thank you for the way that you assure us that we ourselves are replaceable in this work, but that this work depends on the power of the word of our King Jesus. And this word, this work depends on the work of your spirit through us. Lord, make us desirous, make us, make us long for the fruit, the gospel fruit that we uh, see even in Corinth and Ephesus. Lord, cause us to see it here at Trinity in Hatboro. We pray in the name of Christ our Lord. We say together, amen.